Well, friends, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking together this morning at the first seven verses. I'm one of those guys who tends to think that the past is better than the present more often than not. I'm nostalgic, for one thing, on a personal level. I'm also a lover of history and these lost worlds that time has taken from us. I tend to prefer the past to the present in some things. But in some areas, even I can admit, in some areas you'd be crazy to prefer the past to the present. Last week, um, Dave and I, uh, mentioned this last week as well, but many of you know it, Dave and I uh, were traveling to, uh, to do an event to encourage some of our ministry partners um, on the other side of the world. So we were in Turkey for, for most of last week and uh, flew transatlantic to get there. Took about 10 hours coming home. On that flight, I had a, a pretty comfortable seat. Had a little fold-out desk that I could use for my work. I had a staff bringing me drinks at regular intervals. I had food that was edible, if not delicious. I had it placed right down in front of me without giving it any thought. I didn't lift a finger to prepare that food. All in all, it, it was a coach flight. First class would have been nicer. But it was relatively efficient and generally pleasant. Meanwhile, on this trip, I was reading this awesome new biography of Frederick Douglass, a famous abolitionist leader, former slave, escaped slave, who turned into the most powerful force for ending slavery in American history. Fantastic biography of this incredible man. And came across the passage where he, for the first time, travels across the Atlantic to do a little speaking tour, raising money for the cause and generating interest for the cause over in the British Isles. What took me 10 hours took him 11 days. While I had a staff bringing me drinks and food and the comfort of a relatively stable, smooth flight, his ship was dodging icebergs in the North Atlantic. 11 days of of life and death travel for him. That's what it took him to get across the Atlantic. Sometimes the present is better than the past and you'd be crazy to go back. I think that's one of the main arguments that Paul's been making in this letter to the Galatians. That with the coming of Jesus, there has been a radical shift in how people relate to God. And you'd be crazy to go back to the way it was before. He's been making that general point in several different ways. We've been trying to follow his argument as best we can week to week. But the, but, the, but the argument underneath it has all been pretty consistent and really clear. Why in the world would you want to add to what Jesus accomplished, to what Jesus has given you, to who Jesus has made you to be before God? Why would you want to add to that by some requirements of the law? It's ridiculous. That's what he's been arguing. And the passage we come to this morning in the first seven verses of chapter 4 is another before and after scenario. It's another, another description of what you had of what was true before Christ and what is now true after God sent his own son to redeem those who were under the law. It's a powerful description of the gospel. One of the most powerful I know of packed into a couple of verses that I hope will encourage you as much as they've encouraged me this week. I want to just simply bring you into this this picture he gives us through looking at the before and looking at the after. The before comes out in the first three verses that we're going to look at this morning. The after comes out beginning in verse 4. 
I want to start by reading the whole thing. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in chapter 4, verse 1 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is God's word to us. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's Word. You can be seated. This is a before and after story. We want to understand what the before meant and what the after now means. Verse 7 pretty well captures the the, 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 what the before, how Paul sums up the before and how he sums up the after. It's a shift from slavery, that's his image for the before, to sonship. That's his image for the, for the after. Slavery and sonship. We want to understand what, what kind of slavery he's talking about and what it is to be sons and daughters of God. That's what we're going to try to do together this morning, beginning with the before. That's point number one, the before, which he defines as slavery. Paul opens up here, these first couple of verses, with an analogy. The analogy itself, on the surface, as far as it goes, is pretty clear. When a child who stands to inherit a fortune is still a child, he may as well be a slave. He can't spend the money the way he wants to. He can't manage his own investment portfolio. He doesn't have control of his own schedule. I mean, he doesn't even have control over the food that's being shoved into his mouth. When that child is little, that child may as well be a slave. It doesn't look very much like an heir for a while. That's the analogy Paul gives us. That part's pretty clear. But there are a lot of questions about this analogy and its background and how it compares to what he said about the law back in chapter 3. Whether the guardian is a good thing or a bad thing. Lots of questions about what he's going to say later in chapter 4. Paul's mixing metaphors here in a way that can be hard to un- untangle. And in fact, just to, just to put my cards on the table, I think there's some questions about this analogy that are raised that are really interesting to dig into, but, but I've just decided not to go there together this morning, partly because I think the point of it, the big picture of it, is really clear. And I want to focus on what's clear this morning. The picture that Paul wants us to take from it is that before you were living with a reality that just can't be compared to what you can have now. He's describing a situation you wouldn't want to go back to. Whatever this analogy is doing, it's setting up his main point in verse 3. In the same way, just like this analogy, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what Paul wants to draw our attention to, the thing he's really talking about, is slavery to the elementary principles of the world. Something you'd be crazy to want to return to. So what is that? What is this slavery to the elementary principles of the world? That's the main question I want us to think about because that's the point Paul's trying to get at with this analogy. How does this slavery to the elementary principles of the world 
relate to being under the law, which is what they're tempted to go back to, what Paul wants them to, be, to avoid. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table again, just to be really honest. I'm really not actually sure what this means. There's a lot of discussion that I read this week and no consensus over exactly what he means by the elementary principles of the world and how that compares to the law, which he's been talking about all along. But I do want to give you one possible answer that I think is really strong. Something that, I, that, that one possibility that, that came out in, in, in the scholarly works that I read this week to try to get my mind around this. One possibility I think not only fits how this language is used in other places, but fits the kind of thing Paul wants to do with this analogy later. Sets up what he wants to say about the after. Let me give you one, one of the best options for the meaning of this, of this phrase in verse 3. And, I, and I'm going to use that to set us up for what we want to say about, about the sonship that comes after. One of the best options for the meaning of elementary principles, that phrase he uses in verse 3, is uh, that it refers to basic principles in, in the world. Water, wind, fire, earth. The Greeks were all were really interested and talked about these things in that way. The elementary principles. The basic building blocks of life in the world. So in this sense, it element, don't, when you hear elementary principles, don't think the basics of Christianity. Don't think where you start. Like an elementary school, if you will to build to something that more mature Christians should get. There's other places in the New Testament that, that use language like that. Paul's not using that language here. That's not what he has in mind. He's talking about the elements, so this argument goes. That's the way this phrase has been used in other places. That especially makes sense because of a similar reference he makes a little bit later here in, verse, in chapter 4. Look at verses 8 to 10. Same language of slavery, same language of elementary principles. Only here... He's talking about false gods. Look at verse 8. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those, there's the slavery language again, that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So there it seems like whatever these elementary principles are, they're gods, or false gods at least, things that they worship and serve. So, oh, that starts to make sense. Because in the pagan mindset, the Greek background that Paul's writing into, things like water were seen to, to have divine power behind them. The Greek god of the sea, Poseidon, was one you'd want to pay off before you took a trip by boat across the Mediterranean. You wanted that god on your side if you're going to be out there at the mercy of whatever those storms might kick up. You at the very least wanted him to ignore you, if not to help you. So you tried to keep him happy. So these elementary principles of the world, things like water, actually do map onto false gods, those who are by nature not gods. It seems like that's what Paul has in mind here. He doesn't want them to go back into a slavery to trying to keep the gods happy so that life goes exactly as they want it to. I think that makes a lot of sense, not just of the language Paul's using, but of what he's trying to do bigger picture in this letter. See, these Galatians he's writing to, their background wasn't Judaism for the most part. Their background would have been paganism. Would have been a relationship to the gods that was very transactional, not personal. Just business. You figure out which one's help you needed, you offer him something you think that he'll like, and then hopefully he's for you when the time comes. It's not personal, it's just business. Unfortunately, and this is where the, 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 the law, as Paul's backdrop through this letter, starts to come into it. Unfortunately, there was a way of using the law of, of Moses 
the law that guided Israel's life together that really looked a whole lot like this sort of paganism. Because the law could be treated not as a way of showing your dependence on God, as a way of building Him into every part of your life, but as a way of offering a set of payments to Him to get blessing from Him. Turning the law into not, not this comprehensive way of honoring the Lord, but into a way of buying Him off, basically. Treating Him like a pagan God who's there when you need Him for the resource that you need at the time if you've got the money to pay for it. I think that's the, the best sense I can make of, the, of, of where Paul's coming from here. And Paul, it makes sense. If that's what he's got in mind, this transactional relationship to God, where it's not personal, it's just business. I offer him something, he offers me something in return. Paul describes that sort of life in the world as slavery. And whether these elemental forces are really divine gods that you need to worship and pay off through sacrifice. Whether they, whether they really are or not is kind of beside the point for Paul. Their experience of life, worshiping those kinds of gods and now perhaps treating the God of Israel in the same way, is a kind of bondage. Because you can never rest. You've always got to earn. You never know where you stand with these gods. They're fickle. And they don't stay for you any further than your ability to pay them. Not only that, not only do you have to keep them happy, you have to know what you need from them. They're not comprehensively watching out for your life. They're not paying attention to the twists and turns of it, always there for what you need, even when you don't recognize it. They're a resource, but you've got to know how to tap into it. In other words, you have to know what you need. You have to have a mastermind approach to your future. You are the one pulling the strings They'll only be as good as your ability to use them, even if you can pay them off and get what you need out of them. It's no way to live. Paul knows that. It's a kind of slavery, in other words. I love Isaiah's image for this. Isaiah has some of the most, the prophet Isaiah has some of the most withering criticism of, of idol worship that Israel was always tempted to because it was so prominent around their neighbors and it offered this allure of control you know, the allure that, that I can, I, I know how to pull this lever and I know how to get the result that I want if I do that. It offered this allure that could, couldn't resist it. Isaiah, one, in Isaiah 46, one of my favorite images for the, the, the futility and the foolishness of this idolatry is he describes these gods as gods that have to be carried on your own back. You fashion them out of gold, you make them into the right image that you want them to have, but then if you want to pick up and go somewhere, you've got to pick them up and, and, and carry them as far as you want them to go. They, they won't go any farther than you carry them. These sorts of gods are only as effective as you make them. They're limited by your power by your resources. That's what Isaiah is saying. How different, he says in Isaiah 46, to have a God who carries you instead. Paul is, I think, doing something very similar to what Isaiah did here. He's showing that that kind of approach to God is a slavery that you don't want any part of. And he's setting them up for the freedom that comes from having a God who's father instead. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the after. What Paul says in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4 here offers one of the most beautiful and compelling versions of the gospel I know of. It's short, but it's comprehensive. And there is some incredible power here to encourage us all this morning. I want to spend the rest of our time together just unpacking this after picture. 
what it is to be not a slave, but a son and a daughter of God. Whatever ambiguity there might be about the details of what Paul's getting at in that analogy and in the slavery part of verse 3, the overall point has been really clear, I hope. He's describing a before that can't compare to this after. He's setting up what he wants us to know about now, about what God did in the fullness of time to transform what you may have taken for granted about how we relate to God. I love the way that verses 3 and 4 echo the Exodus story that we considered earlier this year together. I think the Exodus is all behind this as a kind of uh, picture in advance of what this story would be. There's the slavery of verse 3, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. There's the but, the transformation that comes in verse 4, the fullness of time when God who hears, who sees the distress of his people, acts. In the Exodus story, God acted by sending Moses. In this story, God acts by sending his own son. And this sending, this sending is the pivotal, never going back event in the history of the world. So what happened? When God sent his own son, what happened? What happened that changed things forever? What's the after in this story? What's available to you if you'll opt out of the rat race of trying to keep the gods of your life happy and trust him instead. I want you to see three things. Three things that define this after. Three things that are available to you if you'll trust in Jesus. Come to God through him and not on your own terms. These are the three things that Paul points us to here. Number one, what's available to you because God has sent his son into the world, is redemption. Redemption. That's verse 4. And verse 5. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, in other words, fully human, just like us, born under the law, in other words, living according to God's standards, perfectly. And this happened, verse 5 says, to redeem those who were under the law. Redemption is the first thing we get. Hopefully by now, if you've been with us very long in this series, this point he's making is pretty familiar. Chapter 3 spent a lot of time on this basic point. There Paul said, if you want to live by the law, like they were tempted to do, then you've got to keep all of it. You'll have to keep it perfectly. If you want to have any chance of living by the law, it's all or nothing. The law is not some sort of marginal thing that you give to sort of top up your goodness on your terms. That's the way they were probably tempted to think of it is baseline, we're good with God and then the law helps us give a little extra that'll then bring back some good to us. But that's not the wrong way to think about the law, Paul has said. It's all or nothing. If you want to live by it, you've got to keep it perfectly and no one has. No one at least until Jesus. But Jesus, God's son, was sent into the world under the law. He did obey perfectly. His life was righteous. And because his obedience was perfect, he was able to redeem those who lived under the law's curse. Oh, how different this is from the pagan religion they'd grown up with. Remember that way that religion worked? You only got what you paid for. You related to gods who had to constantly be paid off, constantly appeased, with an on-again, off-again relationship to their affections and you're only ever for hire 
this God, the God who redeems, the God who sent his own son under the law to redeem those who were under the law's curse, this is a God who pays. Not a God who has to be paid off. A God who pays for you. Do you really want to go back to that slavery, Paul is saying? Why would you treat this God like he wants you to barter your way to his blessing? Look what he did. The first thing you gain if you trust in this Jesus is a redemption you can't find anywhere else. Because it's a redemption earned perfectly by him and given to you as a gift. Friends, if you are burdened by your sin this morning, if you came in knowing that you've done things you can't undo, then what I hope you hear in this, in this verse is another opportunity to respond to the truth that Jesus can offer you perfect and complete redemption. You can walk out of here this morning defined not by the sin you brought in with you, but defined by His perfect righteousness. And that can happen not through pretending like you're better than you really are, but because Jesus saw you as you are and paid your debt completely on the cross. You can be redeemed, if you will, through Him. And when you are, the second thing you get the second beautiful aspect of this after story, what you get is adoption. Through redemption, you gain adoption. I love the next so that in this text. Look at verse 5. He got, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There was a purpose to this redemption. It wasn't an end in itself. God didn't just send his son to remove our track record of guilt before him, but to bring us into a family we couldn't have ever imagined before. This payment of a debt is not the end game. It's just the open door into a relationship that is full of goodness and beauty, a relationship that wouldn't be possible as long as sin was a barrier. Through the redemption that's in Jesus, because of the death of Jesus for our sins, we become sons and daughters of God. That's what he sent Jesus to accomplish. And friends, what a beautiful reversal this is. He who was God's son became a curse for us so that we who were his enemies might become sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Jesus. One of my favorite descriptions of this reality the beauty and the power of adoption into God's family outside of the Bible is a chapter on being sons and daughters of God in J.I. Packer's book called Knowing God. It's a classic book that we try to keep always stocked on the resource table out here. If you don't have it um, and, and you want a little help going further into this idea we're talking about together today, this adoption idea, I want to recommend you go grab that, just take it, our gift to you. Grab it off the table if there's any out there and read that chapter this afternoon. I think you'll be encouraged by it. One of the things Packer says in this chapter is that this blessing of being sons and daughters of God, that's the highest privilege the gospel has to offer. The highest privilege of the gospel isn't a freedom from the debt that we owed, a freedom from the sins that had defined us. That, Packer says, is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. It's underneath everything else. It's the first one, the foundational one. You can't have anything good from God apart from, from Jesus reckoning with our sin. 
So it starts there. But then on top of that foundation, the highest privilege of the gospel is built. The highest privilege of the gospel is this adoption into God's family. See, and and Packer says, it's it's this, this new reality, this new family relationship to God that defines what's new about the New Testament and the New Covenant. See, in the Old Testament, the emphasis was always on God's holiness, as it should have been. On God as perfect in righteousness and demanding that kind of righteousness from those he made in his image. That's why there was so much emphasis on law and obedience. It's why there was the emphasis on sacrifice. It's why you had to come to him only through the temple and only through these very specific regulations. All of that making the point that, that, that God's holy presence is not safe for sinners. Holiness was the emphasis in the Old Testament. And that's still here in the New Testament. That doesn't go anywhere. But now, built on top of that, added to that picture, believers can know this holy God up close as their father. Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the father except through him. Everything he did, his life, his death, and his resurrection was meant to conduct us to our Father and His. That's new. Now, here's how Packer puts it. I love the way he puts this in the chapter. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that's distinctively Christian as opposed to Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. It's a before and after story. Compare this with the before and see what a glorious difference it makes. If God is just a resource you tap into on your terms, then for all the attraction of the control that offers to you, the kind of term setting you get to do for your life and your future, for all the attraction of that, for the illusion of autonomy that it offers you, at least for a while, you will never find peace with that posture. Instead, you'll always have pressure. Pressure to know what kind of future you need. Pressure to know the best way to get there. Pressure to make the best uses of these resources at your disposal. But these resources, even God's own goodness, will only be as useful as your ability to use them. In other words, your life, your future, all of it, it's on you. But through adoption? Through adoption, you have what you need most. You have a father who knows perfectly. A father who protects and provides on his terms. A father whose terms are always good. Friends, he doesn't redeem us just to turn us loose, just to let us run free or we'll be vulnerable and alone again. He redeems us to bring us in. He redeems us to bring us all the way home. And what I want to focus on now for these last few minutes is the third blessing that God gives in this after period that is meant to drive home to bring into our experience the power and beauty of what Jesus accomplished for us. What do we have in this after period? We have redemption. We have adoption. And third, we have indwelling. We have 
God's spirit in us. This spirit was the promise of the prophets. This spirit was always meant to be the central piece of this new era, the new relationship that's made possible by Jesus in the fullness of time. Look at verse 6. Because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is one of several times in Galatians that Paul talks about the Spirit. It's one of his main themes in this letter. We're about to get into some of this stuff starting today, but then in the next couple of chapters of the letter. One of the things that we're going to be getting into now, starting today, is what it looks like to have the Spirit. When you have Him, what kind of fruit does He bear? What changes does He bring to your life? How would you know that He's working in you? This is our first example of what the Spirit actually does. Verse 6 says, what the Spirit does in you is cause you to cry out, Abba, Father. Does that surprise you? Is that a little underwhelming? A lot of times we have tended to think about the Spirit in terms of the supernatural power that's often obvious in the Scriptures when the Spirit's on the, on the move. When we think about some of the miracles that happen in the book of Acts, or the... the, 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 the early leaders of the church speaking in tongues they don't even know, preaching the gospel without even knowing what they're saying because the Spirit is in them moving and we want that. Some sort of obvious and radical experience of Him. But when the writers of the New Testament tell us what to expect from the Spirit, it's a lot more like this right here. You'll know that Spirit's in you when you're crying out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? It's one thing to become God's children by adoption. That happens all at once. When you believe, when you have faith in Christ and what he offers, all at once you are redeemed from the curse of sin and you are brought into God's family. There is a kind of legal reality that takes effect immediately. In God's eyes, that's who we are now. Heirs with Jesus of all the rights and privileges that Jesus has. But that legal reality... That all, for, all, all at once, once for all reality is, isn't the end. It's only the beginning. Friends, there's a lived reality that comes next. An experience of what we are in God's eyes. So that we see and experience ourselves what He already defines us to be. That only happens over time. That experience of relating to Him as a father and not as a distant judge that we fear or as a... A, a resource that we tap into, but as a father that we trust and live with, that reality only takes shape over time. And the way that God brings us into that reality so that we experience it is His Spirit. His Spirit's work is to change us from seeing God as a resource to tap into when we need Him into a father whose presence we crave every single day. In other words, God sent His Son to redeem us so that He could adopt us and He sent His Spirit to convince us in our bones, in our heart, that it's all really true. This cry, Abba, Father, comes from an Aramaic word that's the street language of the Jews in Jesus' day. It's an intimate family word, Abba. It's the kind of sound that's captured by an infant. It's what they can make. It's captured in the language that we use and other cultures all around the world use. Da, 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 da. Pa, 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 pa. Ba, 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 ba. That's what they can do. Abba. 
It's the language of the family, the intimacy that Paul has in mind. It's an unprecedented intimacy. What does it look like to relate to him from this place? Well, there are two other places in the New Testament where this word comes up. Two other places where Abba, Father, is used. And in each of these places, we have a window into the lived reality God's Spirit is bringing into our hearts right now. What does it look like to live as if God is your Father? What is the Spirit bringing about in you when He gives you this cry, Abba, Father? Well, another place in Paul's letters where this phrase comes up is Romans chapter 8. There in Romans chapter 8, he says, the spirit of adoption we've received is not a spirit of fear leading you back into slavery to fear, but a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Paul's pointing to this transition from fear to peace. The lived reality the spirit brings out in our hearts is one where we know that God has us and we don't have to be afraid. See, in the God is butler style of relationship to him, you never know where you stand because you never, you know that, that wherever you stand, it's on your own two feet and you're only going to go as far as your two feet can carry you. And the world is an inhospitable place on terms like that. There is reason for fear if you're your own best hope. But with the knowledge of a father who's always with us, always protecting, always watching, even when we sleep, there's a lived reality that, that, that transitions us from the fear that otherwise makes sense into a peace you won't find anywhere else. But we need to say one more thing about this lived reality. Just because it, it, it looks like peace instead of fear doesn't mean that there's no pain or struggle or loss in it. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for the things that tend to cause us fear. I mean, Romans 8 ends with a promise that death or life, things present, things to come, nothing can separate us, but doesn't promise that you won't experience persecution and sword and famine and distress and nakedness. A whole laundry list of things that pretty much describe the way the early Christians had to live sometimes that you will experience. The kinds of things you normally fear may still happen to you. So this transition from fear to peace doesn't happen because there's no reason to be afraid anymore, because these things you were once fearing won't happen to you. That's not true. What moves us from fear to peace isn't the promise that nothing we fear will happen to us. What, ha- what moves us from fear to peace is, first of all, a move from control to trust. And this movement, from the need to control our future to the ability to trust God with it, That's the move that we see in the other occasion that this word is used. That time it's Jesus who speaks it. This is the spirit of God's son after all. He's just teaching us to say what Jesus said. On the worst night of Jesus' life, the night that he knew he would be betrayed and beaten, tortured before being killed, facing a pain and an agony we can't imagine, knowing what it would take to redeem God's children from the curse of the law, Mark 14, 36, shows us Jesus in the garden crying out, Abba, Father, let this pass away from me. Nowhere is his humanity more clear than this moment. Of course, he's born of a woman. He's like us. Of course he asked for this to pass away. He didn't want to be tortured. 
He didn't want to be humiliated. He didn't want alienation from his father. He doesn't want that because he's human. Do you want that? Of course he prays that it will pass. But in this dark night of his soul, dreading what of course he would dread, his instinct is to cry out, Abba, Father. To be honest about where he is, but then in the end to pray, Not my will, but your will be done. This is the lived reality of God's children. This is what God sent His Spirit to work out in us. An ability to face things we never would have asked for. To cry out in the middle of it, Abba, Father. And then to resign. Not my will, but your will be done. The shift from control to trust is a shift that only God's Spirit can bring out in us. So friends, what should you do with this? If you're dealing with stress this morning, with fear, with dread, with regret, with the temptation to control the terms of your life, what you do with this is pray. You pray specifically that God by His Spirit will remind you that you are His child and that you can trust His will to be done and that you can trust His will is always good. That's what you do with it. Let's do that together right now. Father, I pray that by Your Spirit's power You will cause us, as Jesus did, to cry out, Abba, Father, and to trust You with what we can't control. This is a miracle. We know that. We ask you to do it by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.